0: He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. When Christ returns and he brings heaven to earth, we will finally and fully enjoy everlasting life with God himself. His presence will fill the new heavens and the new earth. This is how history ends. This is what we all anticipate. For all those who are united by faith with Christ, he himself will be with us as our God. Now, depending on your view of God, this may or may not sound all that exciting. If you think of God as being one of a distant, cold father, maybe his nearness is not all that desirable to you. Maybe communion with God, intimate fellowship with God, doesn't actually sound appealing at all. In fact, even as I'm explaining how history culminates in the presence of God, You might be getting tense. Perhaps you spend more time fleeing the presence of the Lord than you would be willing to admit. You know, you're supposed to enjoy God's presence, and there are times, of course, when you truly have. But it's all too often the case that your enjoyment of God's presence is clouded over with distraction or pain or shame. If any of this sounds familiar to your experience, you may be excused for thinking that celebrating that Jesus is God with us feels less exciting to you than it ought. Dorothy Sayers is one of my favorite authors. She once said that the incarnation is the most dramatic thing about Christianity. Indeed, it is the most dramatic thing that ever entered into the mind of man but when you tell people so they stare at you in bewilderment like that's true our our relationship with the presence of god is complicated we don't fully understand or grasp the the importance of what it means that jesus is god with us so my goal this morning is to convince you from the word that the presence of god is something we ought to both enjoy now and anticipate enjoying more in the future Ryan Fields and I posted some daily Advent devotional thoughts throughout the month of December leading up to Christmas morning, and what we tried to do is just take a sampling of different scripture passages throughout the Bible with the intention of tracing out the theme of God's presence with his people from the beginning to the end. So what I'm going to do this morning, a little bit out of the ordinary, what I'm going to try to do is sort of weave that into a unified sermon. So... Please bear with me. If this doesn't work, we're, we're trying it. A little out of the ordinary, but this is our goal this morning, is to concentrate and to give our mental faculties to thinking about what it means that God is with us and why that's good. Let's pray as we start. Father, is uh, my brother Kevin prayed earlier. We are grateful to be able to acknowledge your presence here among us. Uh, it, is, it is a great encouragement to know that we do not have to stir up our own emotions enough for you to show up. And that's not how this works. Your presence is not dependent upon our performance. Father, we're uh, humbled. And encouraged by the fact that your spirit is here amongst us this morning, indwelling us as your temple. Father, we pray that that spirit would, would do a work in us, causing us to be more like Jesus, more holy, and to love you more. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. When he breathed life into Adam's body, God began our unending dependence upon him as the infinite source of all life and happiness. Genesis 1 says that God specially created Adam and Eve in his image and after his likeness. In his image and after his likeness. So being in God's image means that we are to represent his rule on earth. Being made after his likeness means that we have the capacity to relate to him. So being made after the likeness of God means that we have the capacity to relate to God. So we have a drive to relate to and to know our creator. It's built right into us right off the bat. Adam and Eve were created to enjoy God's blessed presence. God apparently came to the Garden of Eden uh, often to walk with Adam and Eve in intimate fellowship and, and in communion with them. It's hard to picture what that must have been like, isn't it? God's relationship with mankind before sin. Can you imagine having an unbroken relationship with the one who is the eternal fountain of all that is good and loving? All that is satisfying. No guilt, no shame, no violence, no suspicion. Just the deepest corners of their hearts would have been filled with loving thoughts of their creator. Their hearts must have throbbed with gratitude as they freely explored the riches of the pristine creation that God gave them to enjoy. This is what we were made for. Eden is where we find our purpose. Whatever it is that you think the purpose of your life is. To treat others the way that you want to be treated, to leave a legacy, to engage in meaningful work, to raise a family, all of these are good things. But all of that is subordinate to living life in the presence of God. The longing in your heart for purpose can only be filled when you live according to your purpose as it has been given to you by your creator, which is to live in God's presence. So we can only really understand ourselves as humans in light of the need that we have for God's favor and God's presence. But the tempter entered into the Garden of Eden... And told Adam and Eve that if they disobeyed God's word, they would become like God. The rebellion ruptured the communion with God. Because what happened was the serpent deceived them. The serpent's deception drew a fact, drew their attention away from the fact that they were already created after the likeness of God. This was already true of them. But they rebelled against God's good word, and their rebellion ruptured their communion with God. Not only that, it brought misery into this world, brought misery to them and upon the rest of creation. No longer would Adam and Eve look forward to and anticipate God's presence being with them. They didn't look forward to walking with God anymore. Now they would hide from him. Shame of their disobedience made them flee from his presence instead of enjoying his presence. Following that original sin, all humans, which is including you and me, are sinners by nature and by choice. Doesn't your sin make you want to flee from God's presence? Isn't that what happens in your heart as well? Isn't our natural reaction just like that of Adams and Eves? When you've given in to to anger or lust or hatred, greed, gluttony, Gambling, whatever it is that you've given into, isn't your reaction shame? Uh, A feeling of inadequacy, like you just can't quite measure up. We turn in on ourselves because our sinful nature would have us run from the satisfaction that is in God and run towards the disobedience to God's word, which was the source of our misery to begin with. If you're a guest here this morning and you don't consider yourself a Christian... Welcome. We are glad that you're here. I wonder how this sounds to you. Maybe you don't fully understand all of the tenets of, of Christianity, but does something about this effect of sin ring true in your experience? Do you find yourself seeking satisfaction in those same places that have only disappointed you over and over again. Are you confused and frustrated by your own behaviors? If so, I hope you'll keep listening. Mankind brought ruin to the vital relationship with our creator through sin. This is the definition of sin. Sin separates us from God. Much of the rest of the storyline of scripture now is just going to be tracing out how this relational, uh, relational rift that exists now between the creator and the creation, how is that going to be restored? Much of the biblical history is just trying to tease that out over time. Noah, for example, was chosen as a new Adam. He was going to be a fresh, righteous start in a wicked world. But he fell into sin, and the curse continued. Many generations later, a man named Abraham was called as another Adam. God promised to make him into a great nation in a special homeland, and that he would have descendants, which are as numerous as the stars in the sky. And in order to assure Abraham of the promises that God gave to him, God cut what was called a covenant with him. The covenant was a way to formalize the relationship between God and Abraham. In a symbolic ceremony, God appeared in the form of a blazing torch and passed in between pieces of sacrificed animals. God was expressing that he would never let his promises to Abraham fail to come to pass. The creator of the universe now holy and righteous was willing to graciously condescend to come down with sinful Abraham in the middle of that dusty middle eastern desert to express his love for his people one of Abraham's descendants one of his many descendants was named Joseph Joseph was sold into slavery in prison in Egypt in the midst of Joseph's trials Genesis 39, 21 says that the Lord was with him. The Lord was with Joseph. Now, that didn't mean that everything was always delightful for Joseph. Indeed, he was hated by most of his family. He was sold into slavery, after all, thrown into prison. Yet it was even in those very moments that God was with him. From one angle, everything was a mess for Joseph, He was in an egyptian prison he was suffering at the hands of evil men yet from another angle things were going precisely as planned joseph would eventually rise to power in egypt and his power would allow him to provide food for his family during a time of famine perhaps you feel like things are messed up for you right now one thing that is clear in scripture is that God's presence is not always a guarantee of comfort in every moment of this life. But it does mean, for those that love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Abraham's descendants settled in that nation of Egypt. They became known as the people of Israel. They were growing into a big community. In fact, they were so big that the pharaoh of Egypt was a little bit concerned about them. He begins to fear them, and he begins to oppress them. He oppresses the people of Israel and subjects them to harsh bondage slavery. Israel, God's people, groaned. They cried out for rescue from this bondage and their slavery, and God heard their cries. He appointed a man called Moses to deliver his people out of Egypt. As Moses was keeping watch over his uncle's flock, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of the fire out of the midst of a bush. God appears to Moses with Moses and tells him that he wants him to lead his people out of Egypt and into the promised land. Moses didn't feel qualified to do this job, but the Lord promised, his promise, is that he would be with him to accomplish Israel's redemption. So maybe we should just pause here just very briefly just to reflect a little bit more about what God's presence is. If you know much about God, you know that he is omnipresent, which is to say that he is everywhere present. He exists everywhere. There is nowhere where God is not. So when Scripture describes him as being with someone or it describes his presence... We need to think of it as more than just his existence in a place. In scripture, his presence is most often spoken of in a relational or redemptive sense. There's no room for thinking of God as being some sort of an impersonal force. God is personal. God is relational. In fact, as Uh, We find, as the redemptive history sort of unfolds over time, what we find is that God actually has eternally been relational and personal way before he created humanity because there are three persons in the one God. He has always existed as God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. And it is their eternal relational intimacy that we are invited into in the gospel. Through a series of signs and wonders, God used Moses to free his people from their slavery. The Israelites plundered the Egyptians. They went out in search of the promised land. God not only redeemed Israel out of Egypt, he went before them by day in a pillar of cloud and by night in a pillar of fire. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire function as signs of God's presence, his special and unique presence with his people. Like a shepherd leading his sheep to water in a desert, God was with his people, leading them to a land flowing with milk and honey. Before they entered into the promised land, God would give Israel a plan to build a special place where he could meet with them again, almost like he did in the Garden of Eden. God would reveal his holiness and his glory in the defined space of an intricately designed tent called the tabernacle. In his sovereign mercy, God was pleased to have his glory, his special presence, dwell in the tabernacle where he could meet with the children of Israel. When the construction of the tabernacle was completed, God took up residence in the tabernacle. And he appointed a priesthood to make regular, ongoing sacrifices. And these sacrifices would be an ongoing, consistent reminder that sin would always need to be dealt with in order to restore a right relationship with the Creator. God's glorious presence was guarded in this tabernacle behind a thick, 60-foot-tall veil in a place called The Holy of Holies, no one could enter into the space behind that veil upon penalty of death except for the high priest. Only the high priest could enter once per year on the Day of Atonement to offer the blood of a sacrificial substitute for the sins of the people. So notice this recurring theme as we're just walking through redemptive history. Despite the sin of his people, God continues to show mercy to them reaching out to them with his holy presence. God calls his people to commune with him in in holy intimacy. Well, Israel did eventually enter into the promised land, they were given a king who was supposed to rule over them as, as a nation, according to God's law that he gave to them. The greatest of Israel's kings was called David. King David was genuinely devoted to the Lord, and he wanted to upgrade God's house. He wanted to upgrade God's dwelling place from a tent into a more permanent house, like a temple. But God flipped the script on him. God promised to build up David's house instead. So God promises to David to bless his, his house, his dynasty, his lineage, with an eternal kingdom and an eternal throne. David did have a son who was king too, a great king named Solomon, Solomon was allowed to build that house that David, his father, wanted to build. So Solomon builds that house where God's presence could dwell a little more permanently. it was called a temple. At the ceremony to dedicate this temple to God's presence, Solomon marveled at the mystery of how God's special dwelling could be inside of creation. If you know anything about Solomon, you know he's one of the wisest guys ever. Solomon is called one of the wisest people of all time. And it's that reason, his wisdom, is why he was dumbstruck about what was taking place. Solomon was wise enough to understand that this was amazing. He knew that not even the highest heaven could contain God's essential presence. So how could the creator dwell in this building that was created by human hands? But when the temple was completed, the glory of the Lord fills the temple, And God does make his dwelling place there amongst Israel. Wise men are driven to adoration at the thought that the boundless God freely chose to inhabit a bounded creation. How much more incredible to think that the Lord would come in human flesh. God's special people were often threatened and assaulted by the nations that surrounded them. When the southern kingdom of Israel was in danger of an invasion from another nation called Assyria, God promised that he himself would deliver them from the conflict. He would assure them of their coming victory in the battle by giving them a sign. The sign was this. A virgin would give birth to a child, and this child would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. The child's name meant that God would be present with Israel in this battle, to achieve victory on Israel's behalf. Well, the child was born. They were indeed delivered from the the Assyrians. But this episode that happened in Israel's history anticipated a much greater deliverance. Matthew 1 verses 18 through 23 talk about this, and it mentions that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy about the birth of a child being born to a virgin. It was surely an act of mercy that that Judah was delivered from Assyria. But oh, what grace and mercy to think about the deliverance that Jesus brings about. Jesus, the second person of the triune God, became flesh and dwelt among us. He was born to eternally set his people free from sin and death and the devil. He stepped into creation to be with us achieving victory on our behalf in our greatest battle. Well, Over time, Israel would move from the astonishment that God would ever indwell this temple to just uh, an assumption that he would never leave it. His presence was taken for granted. The prophets warned Israel that if they did not repent of their sin and remain faithful to the covenant, God would remove his presence from among them. But they paid little attention to the prophets who were warning Israel to repent, and because of their sin, Israel would be put into exile, kicked out of the promised land, thrown out. God's glory left the temple, and that building was eventually destroyed. God's glorious presence now has left the temple. His people were scattered from their land. They're living as exiles under the rule of pagan nations. Things seemed bleak, to put it lightly. And then in 538 B.C., Israel, the Jews, they were allowed now to return to Jerusalem. They were allowed to rebuild the temple. They had very high hopes, very high expectations about this. And a prophet named Haggai was called and appointed to encourage the people in their work of restoring that temple, God's broken down house. Haggai reminded Israel of the Lord's past faithfulness and calling them out of Egypt and of his present presence among them by his Holy Spirit. They longed to see God's presence fill that rebuilt temple as he had before. But when it was completed, God's glory did not fill that temple as expected. Through Haggai, God promised that one day his glory would return to the temple and he would give peace there. But he didn't give explicit details about exactly when or how that would happen, And really, it's one of the cliffhangers that we are left with at the end of the Old Testament. That Old Testament history is so vital to understanding the shocking revelation that we celebrate at Christmas. The New Testament is so much more full when we understand it in light of the Old. In Jesus, God dwelt, and the Greek word there in John 1 is literally tabernacled, Amongst us. John's gospel doesn't record a story about Mary or Joseph or a nativity or a manger, but it teaches us a lot about Christmas. Because John's gospel is very clear about who Jesus is. In the incarnation of Jesus, eternal divinity is united to humanity. Though he is equal to and yet distinct from the Father, the Son emptied himself by assuming a human nature So Jesus came as the final Adam, this time from above. Ever since Adam and Eve were exiled from God's presence, the Lord began to unfold this eternal plan to display his redemptive love for his people. He would have been justified, of course, in leaving you and I in the judgment of our sin and our rebellion. Yet in his infinitely wise compassion, he entered into our misery to absorb the curse of our sin and to bring healing. As true God and true man, Christ the Redeemer can bring us back into God's presence. He is himself our substitute and our savior. That's Christmas. You know, deep excitement at the event of the incarnation is always in danger of devolving or morphing into like a shallow sentimental optimism about humanity. The movies and the songs that we watch and hear this time of year would have us sort of search out a spark of divinity deep within ourselves, only to believe the best about ourselves. The message that we hear this time of year is so often that people are basically pure and we just need to be good for goodness sakes, if we could. But can we honestly say that humanity's great source of misery is a lack of self-esteem, Is it a lack of self-discipline? Is the big problem outside of us and the only solution inside of us? No. Our need is much more radical than humanistic psychology or sociology would have us believe. Our great problem actually comes from within our sinful nature. And the only solution can come from the outside. And that's why Jesus needed to come from the outside. We are, of course, right to seek out the presence of divinity, but we are all too often fooled into thinking that presence of that divinity is already hidden in a spark deep within us. We are not divine. Jesus is. This is what we mean when we confess to believe in Jesus. He alone can rescue his people from their sins. You know, Jesus came in the flesh. This is what we celebrate At Christmas but did you know that he also left in the flesh when he resurrected when he ascended he remained human and he took our human nature with him into God's presence you know what I mean Jesus is truly human and even now is seated at the right hand of the father Christ has dignified our human nature by returning it to God's presence Just one more step in the work of Christ, restoring what was lost in Adam's fall. And when he ascended, the Holy Spirit descended. Where Jesus is is where we anticipate being. He is our pioneer who has gone before us. But he sent down his Spirit to be present with us. Because of the work of of Jesus, of Emmanuel, God the Holy Spirit indwells those who are united to him by faith. So that means that when you stumble into sin, like Adam, your father, the Holy Spirit within you convicts you to confess it to the Lord who is faithful and just to forgive you and to restore communion to you. The Spirit seals our fellowship with God, which came at such an infinite cost and will never be lost. He will never leave or forsake us. He is with us even to the end of the age, Jesus says. The eternal Son of God, the only begotten Son of the Father, entered into creation to be the obedient Son that so many were not. Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Israel, David, Solomon, all were disobedient sons. You can add your name and my name to the list as well. Jesus, however, knew no sin. He was perfectly obedient to the Father in every way that you and I are not and cannot be. He was completely undefiled by sin and yet in an act of sheer mercy, Jesus bore the penalty of our sin upon himself. Jesus not only took on our flesh, but he also took on our burden. At the center of the Christian message is the good news that has sometimes been called the great exchange. Our sin is accounted to Christ as he has made sin for us. And his righteousness is imputed to us as we receive his righteous status. So he takes our sin and he gives us his righteousness. Jesus was born to die for the sins of his people so that those who are united to him by faith would be able to become the righteousness of God. This is how we can be reconciled, put into right relationship to God. Because Emmanuel is God with us. When Jesus died, God tore that giant, thick curtain that guarded his presence in the Holy of Holies from top to bottom. What a brilliant illustration of what it means that Jesus is God with us. Christ's obedient life and sacrificial death put an end to the temple and its sacrificial system. Now, people of all nations would be welcomed into restored communion with God, which is the very thing that the temple was meant to facilitate. By faith, we are no longer restricted from God's presence. We can approach His holy throne of grace with confidence to find mercy and to find fellowship again with our Creator. You may have noticed that the stained glass window is a symbolic reminder of the veil being torn. May it always remind you of the privilege of the intimacy that we have with God through Jesus Christ. If you don't feel particularly merry this Christmas, just take a moment now to silently think about what you've been saved from, the holy wrath of God, and to think about what you've been saved to, the favor and presence of a holy God. Maybe you're sick uh, of trying to make your own happiness without God. That is not just your story. That is the story of all of human history. It's the long troubled history of humanity. We all want God's gifts without God's presence. We invite you to repent and believe. Believe in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. Enjoy God's presence now by his spirit and you can look forward to being with him forever. Reconciled, restored to the infinite source of all life and all happiness forever. Whether he returns or calls you home. Let's take a moment just silently to meditate on what God has done for us in Christ. Father, we are freshly struck by the fact that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is not something that we should ever take for granted or assume. Father, keep us from ever assuming that your presence is owed to us. Father, we are only able to gather boldly, even together as a congregation to approach your throne because of what you have done for us in Christ. Father, would you help us to see sin as the heinous thing that it is that keeps us from you and true satisfaction? And help us to delight in what you've gone to such great lengths to invite us into. Fellowship and communion with you. We love you. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.